This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman. This is a busy week in Greater China. In Beijing, there will be ceremonies tomorrow marking the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. In Taipei, there's a U.S. trade delegation in town for the first time in five years. And in Hong Kong, it's been one year this week since China enacted a national security law, which has transformed the city. We talked late yesterday with Richard Volstek, the president of the East-West Center. Before taking on that role nearly five years ago, he was president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong for almost nine years. I started by asking him whether China has successfully silenced pro-democracy forces in Hong Kong. Well, unfortunately, I think uh, we're not quite there yet. We're rapidly reaching that point. Uh, I think when the, the handover happened between UK and China on Hong Kong in 1997, you may recall all the news media said the end of Hong Kong. You know, everything's gonna it's gonna be just another big city in China, mm. or for China, actually not so big city. Right, right. And uh, uh, all the freedoms are gonna go, and it's too bad it was a good run. That did not happen. Uh, but then with the uh, umbrella movement and other sorts of things of recent years, and I think a more uh, ambitious game plan from Beijing, that has been changing rapidly with, of course, the major turning point being the national security law. At the time of that handover in 97, the basic law, certain freedoms guaranteed for 50 years, one country, two systems, that seems to be gone, but if China can just trample on that, what does that say for its credibility in other international agreements? Well, you know, that's a good question. Of course, you know, what kind of international agreements is, of course, as, as a sub-qualifier there? If we're talking about economic and trade agreements, I mean, that's probably different from the kind of rather unique situation between, you know, China and Hong Kong sure. on the future of the colonies. So. I don't want to say it's a total uh, class of one thing, but it's a little bit different. And I think the Chinese will look that way, and I think other countries do as well. But to your point, the bigger picture is you do want to pay a pretty close attention to what the Chinese say they're going to do. And more importantly, as you would with any kind of agreement, I think, have monitoring and evaluations going forward should things deviate from the words. The security law you mentioned now, now in effect, it's already shut down. Apple Daily, to put Jimmy Lai and others behind bars. Last month, a survey of your old group, the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong, found that 42% of members were planning to leave Hong Kong or thinking about it. What's the future of American business in Hong Kong? Well, it's a good question. You know, I think I've talked to some of my friends, of course, like as, as anyone else, reading the news out of the various sources. The national security law has four main points categories of things where it can get you uh, arrested are, uh, you know, separatism, subversion, terrorist activities, and collusion with foreign forces. Mm. Well, all those are remarkably vague. Yes. And so what it comes down to, the meaning of the national security law is defined by the party. Mm. And so the question is, when you're having an era, a situation with great vagueness in the law, and then some high point, very severe examples of that law being enforced, it uh, makes everyone much more cautious about what they say and do. And of course, freedom of speech, freedom of press are at the top of the list for Hong Kongers for a long time. Mm. And now those are very much being challenged. Let me give you a scenario. A Chinese company lists on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. An analyst at Morgan Stanley Hong Kong, which has 2,000 employees in Hong Kong, writes a report, says that maybe there is some degree of political risk, a phrase that has been in Wall Street research reports forever, for investors. Does Morgan Stanley get in trouble with the authorities? It could well be. That's, that's where the, there's where the vagueness comes in. Uh, the answer is probably depends on the circumstances. And, and so if that's the case, then what's the risk of self-censorship on the part of well, Western banks, for instance? Well, I think um, the self-censorship is already there and probably growing. The question is how to test the waters. Now, the, the one thing that I think 
to remember is that there are American chambers, for example, in Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou, mm. right? They're still operating. And so when it comes to foreign business and foreign chambers operating in Hong Kong, I don't think that Beijing's goal doesn't appear to be to wipe those people out mm. of Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, Hong Kong is significantly different from the other three cities, for example, because they've lived under this Chinese law environment mm. uh, for a long time. Right. And so the rules of the game are kind of more clear, you might mm-hmm. say, because they've in that environment for a long time. Whereas in Hong Kong, it's all new. Yeah. And so my expectation is in the short run, short uh, range, you're going to see much more draconian, forceful uh, control of Hong Kong until people get the message and learn how to operate as they as if they were living in Beijing or someplace north north uh, in Greater China. Hmm. And I think that's what we're going to see. So I think the uh, I'll say the jury's out. The jury's yeah. <laughs> the jury is stacked by the mainland on a national security law because it's their own. It's not a Hong Kong court system. Right. So I think we can expect some pretty severe reactions to things that people don't and Beijing doesn't like in Hong Kong in the in the near and midterm future. Then I would yeah. expect things to get more like China's back to what I said about nineteen ninety seven. Mm. China's another Chinese uh, Hong Kong's another Chinese city. Yeah. And we operate under the same kind of restrictions. Moving to, to Taiwan You've also been president of the American Chamber in Taipei. You've worked there for the State Department, edited the Taiwan Review. There's an ongoing debate about China's intentions with Taiwan. In March, the outgoing commander of the Indo-Pacific Command here in Honolulu told the Senate Armed Services Committee that China could try to take control of Taiwan within six years. His successor didn't put a time frame on it, but told Congress, my opinion is this problem is much closer to us than most think. What do you make of China as a threat to Taiwan? Well, of course, the longstanding picture has been um, that from a U.S. point of view, and now like interesting, increasing enough from a Japanese point of view, uh, that the peaceful resolution of the cross-strait issue has been a U.S. policy, and I think our allies as well. The question is, if there were a military takeover of Taiwan mm. uh, by mainland China, what would be the pushback? Right. And there's ambiguity in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a worrisome ambi- has to be a worrisome ambiguity from Beijing's point of view. Mm-hmm. Because uh, a long time supporter of the United States for Taiwan, watching a uh, 23 million, do- million people democracy to stand by and watch it swallow up after all those things we've done in our you know, Taiwan Relations Act and so forth, would be a real blow to, to uh, U.S. credibility. Um, on the Chinese side, I think. Because of uh, domestic policy and Xi Jinping's uh, uh, you know, China dream sort of thing, I think he has to t- he's ticking the box to show that Taiwan is still on the agenda by the air and sea incursions that we're seeing, by the re- a slight increase in bellicosity. So that domestically, people can't say he's being soft on Taiwan uh, while uh, you know, really closing the closing the door, you might say, on on Hong Kong freedoms. So I think, uh, it, you know, it's it, my crystal ball is no clearer than anyone else's, but, but I. But it's informed by experience. But I think, well, side. yeah, but you know, I've been doing this for a while. But I think, unless there's some accident, and this yes. is what is a real, like an EP three sort of thing, hmm. where then public opinion reacts so vehemently it corners the uh, decision-making process at diplomatic level. That's worrisome, I think, to a lot of people. Military plane downed by... Down or collision in the air or ship collision. We've had an air ship collision already. Uh, The Chinese now have kind of militarized their Coast Guard. Right. So they're they're, they're destroyers with Coast Guard colors. And so that's that's, that's true in Japan as well as with Taiwan. So there's a little more danger in the situation. I think the military commanders on both sides, as well as the government, have to look much more closely at a good hotline. Hmm. As far as a three-year, six-year, 10-year invasion of, of Taiwan by the mainland, I'm a little less concerned about that than I am about a continuing, increasing dialogue on the possibilities of a miscue. But I do think that there'll be more bellicosity in the air. We're talking with Richard Volsack, president of the East-West Center, about Hong Kong, Taiwan, China. 
We'll be back with some thoughts on the East-West Center itself in just a moment. You're listening to The Conversation on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio, HPR1. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring pop-up installations across the museum. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. The Supreme Court has ruled that the NCAA can't bar education-related payments to college athletes. I think losing 9-0 in the Supreme Court, that has an impact. It's not time to have legal fights. It's time to regroup. Some states are going even farther, allowing athletes to profit from their name, image, and likeness. So is this the beginning of the end for amateurism in college sports? That's coming up on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Welcome back to The Conversation. We're talking with Richard Volstek, president of the East-West Center, who also happens to be a past president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong, the American Chamber in Taipei, among other roles, and talking about Hong Kong, Taiwan, and China. Uh, also, the, the East-West Center, it's hard to believe that it's been nearly five years since you came to the East-West Center <laughs> as president. Uh, you recently said that when your five-year term is up at the end of the year, you'll be moving on. Uh, why are you leaving? Well, Bill, thanks for the question. You know, I think some people are surprised. You know, once you come to Hawaii, you're not supposed to retire <laughs> except in the job or something. But um, in my previous jobs, I, I took on took on tasks that were pretty well defined by the hiring committee and the board. Hmm. And I had a same list here in, uh, when I came to Ho- when I was recruited to come here from Hong Kong by the uh, uh, East West Center board. And at first, my contract was going to be three years, and I said, I don't think I can get that done in three years. And so they said five. And uh, although it's the COVID has slowed things down a bit, and I think some of the concerns about talking about climate change and, and dealing with allies in the previous administration kept us a little lower key than I would have liked. We made a lot of good progress in the kinds of things the board wanted me to do when it came to uh, restructuring, some uh, staffing adjustments, uh, upgrading of the whole campus itself, and uh, uh, a greater and tighter array of uh, uh, activities with our supporters around our, our area of responsibility covers 36 countries. And so it's always a challenge. Uh, we're rejuvenating our 70,000 alumni in various kinds of engagement activities. Now it's a relatively new development as well. So a lot of things are going right. I think it's time for me to step out of the way and let someone else step in and let uh, that person you know, take it to the next level. I feel really happy with the, being the first alumnus to run the center. And I think I'm leaving it in a better shape than when I came. Not just because of me, but because of a very supportive board, some more funding from the U.S. government, as you know. Uh, after 10 years of flat funding, we had an increase last year, and it looks like maybe this year, this year as well. All makes a difference. It's come together, and I think we're looking at a bright future for the center. It's going to continue being an important player in the public policy interests of the United States, but also marrying those public policy interests with the priorities of our 36 constituent nations with which we deal. The East-West Center, nonpartisan, nonprofit, you do get federal government money, of course, but more broadly is the Biden administration's returning to an embrace of multilateralism compared to the Trump administration. Any impact from that on the East-West Center? Oh, definitely. I think that um, the concern uh, out of the blocks for the Biden administration on, for example, climate change, on governance issues in the region, uh, concern about certain nefarious forces, uh, increasing corruption in the region that the U.S. Should be, should be offering up more visibly and more vigorously a counter, uh, counter al- uh, alternative. Uh, all these things are uh, involved in his conversation uh, since he became president and also much more engagement with our allies. So as you know, the East-West Center works very closely with uh, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, as well as across Southeast ASEAN and South Asia. Um, And to have that emphasis put on working together for a free and open Indo-Pacific, which really means not following the the model that we see in China of, uh, you know, the party document is it's a one-party dictatorship, basically. Mm. And so criticism of the party, free press, free speech, open courts, the things that we kind of take for granted is, or have taken for granted for a long time, and are also budding in good shape across the region, explaining, strengthening, building 
connections on how important that is, whether it's judicial training or uh, NGO leadership training or what have you. We cover the whole range of things that we do at the center. It's a, we're not a huge player, but we're an important one because we have had these contacts for more than 60 years. Many of our former students and participants are now in middle and senior levels of government and other kinds, of, whether it's academics or NGOs. It really creates a, a network uh, and a commonality of interest on building, I think, a uh, more liberal-based uh, economic and political order. And I think that's what we want. In Asia, a lot of times, Asia-Pacific, there's a council to uh, listen for the dog that does not bark. As you look at the region, what non-barking dogs should we be paying more attention to? But I would say one of the, one of the non-barking dogs we should pay attention to is, and this is China-focused, and that is about, well, let's see, 2013, November 2013 or 2014, an internal Chinese document called Document 9 was published. You can Google this and find it out, This CCP Document 9. And it lists about seven things that party members domestically in China have to guard against and push against. And included in that list are free and open press, free and open civil society, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of assembly, among other things, which was kind of draconian, but it's mm. very much in line with Leninist kind of philosophical background. What's interesting now in the, in the non-barking dog is that that policy, that list of things in Document 9, are now international policy. And so we see attempts, for example, across the region to silence any critical Chinese-language newspapers, whether it's in Bangkok or Jakarta or where have you, and by having them taken over basically by overseas work committees to make sure that there is no criticism of the motherland. Hmm. And we've seen what happened already in lots of reporting, what happens when, when someone criticizes the motherland. Suddenly, they're no longer an Oscar winner, they're an Oscar loser, hmm. right? Hmm. Yeah. And so uh, that's, that's where I think people have to be vigilant as to... Uh, when it comes to, it's not just misinformation or disinformation, it is paying attention to the way China is characterized in, the, in, the, in the, even the major media and guard against through advertising pull or something that anyone who dares to write a column anti-China is suddenly fired or muzzled. That's already been happening, and I think that's the one of the things we need to pay more attention to because... Document 9 says you're not supposed to criticize a party because the party is always right. And that's kind of a point of view, which is kind of distinction to where we think about a free and open conversation. And frankly, criticism, people learn to take and give criticism for constructive ends. Richard Volstek, president of the East-West Center, through the end of the year. Thanks very <laughs> much for coming in and spending time here. Thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. For today's quiz, we were inspired by some vintage footage of a 1970 sitcom filmed on location at a Diamond Head estate in Kahala. It aired for two seasons, from 1972 through 1974, on the Peacock Network, NBC. The storyline followed pediatricians Dr. Sean Jameson and his daughter Anne, who ran a free children's clinic. In the debut season, this show was listed in TV Guide as The Little People. Then in the fall of 1973, the show was renamed The Brian Keith Show. It aired on Friday nights right after Sanford and Son. For today's quiz, we want to know the name of a regular supporting cast member. She was a friendly nurse and receptionist who kept the office in running order. 
call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com. Water has been a political issue on Maui for more than a century. This week, the Hawaii Commission on Water Resource Management issued a series of rulings in a case involving the four great waters in West Maui. HBR's Kuvehi Hirohishi has been following this case, joins us this morning with more. And uh, Kuvehi, what makes this so significant? One of the, the biggest questions to ask when you get uh, these decisions from the uh, Water Commission is whether or not it stands up to the principles embedded in the Hawaii State Constitution and the Water Code that uh, treats water as a public trust resource, uh, meaning uh, how much of this uh, decision is going to restore water going uh, back into the streams. And this is, of course, after uh, centuries of or over a century of uh, this water being diverted by plantation. So now Hawaii is trying to figure out how to restore it uh, with uh, the consideration for all the entities that have become dependent on the diversions, including uh, county residents there in Maui and uh, other companies, including the diversified agriculture there in Mahipono. You know, you mentioned the history on that, and the the executive summary, which runs a very dense (laughs) 15 pages on this, uh, talks about some of the history there. A dozen tunnels excavated between 1900 and 1926. I mean, folks in West Maui know this very well. (laughs) But in terms of the extent of that, it goes back a long time. Right, yes. And, and, you know, we've seen uh, diversions here on Oahu as well and also in East Maui. And part of what the commission did in this decision uh, was talk about uh, improvements needed to these aging systems, uh, meaning there is more water perhaps that could be captured uh, if we go ahead and uh, get these reservoirs up and running. So, for example, there are about uh, 17 reservoirs in this system, 10 of them uh in use, another seven that aren't in use. Let's get those back up and running so that we could ha- possibly have more water uh, in this area. And I did want to mention uh, this is a Navaieha, as you mentioned, the four great waters. So we're talking about a water coming up uh, off the West Maui Mountain into Kahului Bay. So Wailuku and Waihe'e rivers, and then Waikapu and Waiehu streams. And so all this water uh, had a majority of this water had been uh, diverted for uh, so long. And now that we are uh, the commission is trying to figure out how uh, to restore it. It did two things in this, uh, as you say, very lengthy decision. It sets the minimal amount of water that that should remain in the stream for stream life and and having that Maokatumakai flow. Uh, But second and the more extensive uh, lift was figuring out how to divvy up the remaining water. Mm And in this, uh, what's unique about the Eha case is the commission went ahead and set up a permitting system. So everyone, and uh, the end result was 176 permits, but anyone wanting to uh, use any of this water had to apply, justify their use, and then the commission went ahead and in every case talked about why they came up with what decision. Also, a, a large part of this discussion within this of realities of climate change mm-hmm. uh, coming, you mentioned the reservoirs and the, the advice of, hey, you know, <laughs> get, let's get these uh, up. Also, the, um, you know, drought upcountry Maui right now is on water one uh, uh, alert. Yes. And um, that the idea that when you do have heavy rains, make use of that, be able to 
treat that water as the precious resource that it is. And that was actually in uh, the decision itself, figuring out how to get uh, the bigger diverters or those that have uh, manage, have been managing this system to uh, go ahead and make those improvements so that more water could be available. Uh, now, the commission did very break new ground in creating sort of a priority allocation for traditional customary rights and Kuleana landowners, land uh, but Earth Justice Attorney Isaac Mariwake, who kind of helped the community groups in bringing this issue to contested case hearing, uh, says he's concerned that uh, the allocation amounts for the big diverters uh, were, were as big as they were. They ended up allocating way more water than was necessary or justified for a couple of really big users, including Mahipono. Mahipono, as you know, is the company that bought HCNS's, the former plantation lands, and is now running a diversified ag operation over there. But look, if we're going to go from sugar, which is one of the most water-intensive, the thirstiest crops on earth, to diversified ag, we saw this in the Waihole case on Oahu as well. You're going to have way less water needs and way more water that you can return to the streams. We did reach out to, to Mahipono. They were still reviewing this 362-page decision uh, and had no initial comment. But we do know that Mahipono had uh, joined forces uh, with community groups, Hui Onalvaieha, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, and, and Maui Tomorrow, uh, to come to an agreement on using a, a limited amount of water less than what the commission had allocated in this decision. And so we are uh, will be waiting to see whether or not Mahipono will honor that uh, agreement. The commission had said that they would like that, but the diversified ag uh, use that was put into this decision would be for any future diversified ag operation. This will definitely be a uh, continuing story. In the closing comments of the executive summary, the commission mentioned this is a new era of water use and management. Behavior shaped in times when values were not in balance must give way to more sustainable and just policies and practices. We'll be keeping an eye on on this, and so will you. HBR's Kuvei Hiraishi. You can find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Coming Monday is a federal holiday marking Independence Day, but Tuesday is back to work for a lot of folks, and that includes members of the Hawaii legislature. That's the topic of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Lovell's covering the story, and Blaze, this all starts with the governor's veto list. Yeah, Bill, and thanks for having me back on the show. So last week, the governor came out with a list of 20 eight bills that he says he wants to veto um, and that's prompting lawmakers to get back to work like you said starting tuesday they have until noon on that day to gavel into session and that will allow them to make some changes to any of those bills that the governor identified they could override them or they could work with his administration to come to an amicable solution and the, the starting point on, on a lot of this is the, the governor's list, it's an intent to veto, but he doesn't necessarily veto everything that is on that list. It's just if he doesn't put something on that list, he, he's not allowed to veto it. So part of what the legislature needs to see is what actually winds up being vetoed, right? Yeah, and that's kind of part of the trick here is that the, the legislature is going to be gaveling in by noon on Tuesday, but the governor has until 11.59 that night to actually show his hand on what he's going to veto. So it's kind of tricky for lawmakers right now. They're meeting and they're trying to figure out the governor's objections, and they're also trying to guess what he will actually veto. You know, the governor's kept the cards close to his chest before he put out the list, and even now he's still saying that there's some bills... He won't be specific about which bills, but there are some bills he said that, you know, he he hasn't gone through with the veto yet. So it's all kind of a wait and see until 
Tuesday night, probably. And then, meanwhile, there's a large part of this that that does have to be dealt with, and that's in terms of the budget, because the language that the ledge passed, because at the time, they said, oh, we're getting federal funding, let's use some of this to pay off some of the debt, Uh, and then the feds came out very specifically and said, no, you can't do that, and the governor mentioned that um, at his news conference when he went through his intent to veto list. Exactly, and we talked to House Speaker Scott Slicky and Senate President Ron Kochi yesterday morning, and they said that fixing the budget and addressing that $300 million worth of construction projects is going to be the top priority. We also know there's a few other budget bills that the legislature needs to get to work on there. Uh, There's a bill that would authorize the state government. It's an annual bill that lets them you know, take on debt to fund all these construction projects. So that's another must-fix there. And it's interesting also, that as the governor back in, back in his news conference when he was going through the intent to veto list, was talking about how some of the, the economic conditions of the state have changed, some of the assumptions that were in the, uh, in the language, perhaps, of, of some of these bills when the legislature was, was going through them originally. That's shifted a bit, um, and again, we'll, we'll have to see what comes out with the actual vetoes, but certainly the legislature is, um, is attuned to that as well, yes? Yeah, that was a big driver behind some of the governor's decisions, and uh, I know right now, you know, the Kochi and Psyche have instructed their committee chairs to meet on what are some of the bills that they might want to, you know, uh, take a further look at. And the legislature has a couple of options when they come back Tuesday. They could just opt to let some of these bills slide and say, you know what, we'll address it next session. They could also decide that they want to work with the governor. The governor can send them some suggested fixes, and they can make those, and all that takes is a simple majority of both chambers. Uh, on the other hand, uh, they could do what uh, most other legislatures here haven't done. Uh, they could override the governor's veto of any bills starting next week. Uh, that requires a two-thirds majority in both chambers. But the preference is, right now, what we're being told, the preference is to work with the governor's administration to find solutions for some of these attention shifting back to the legislature next week we will keep an eye on that and blaze thanks for your story today thanks again bill all right blaze level with today's reality check you can find his story online at civilbeat.org Cousins is a new film from New Zealand that makes its Hawaii premiere this week. It focuses on three women, three cousins, over the course of several decades. It spotlights the importance of familial ties and the repercussions when one of them is taken away. Family, Fanau, is central to the Maori culture, one of many elements it has in common with the Hawaiian culture. Here's a clip from the trailer. Mata? Cousin Makarita. Remember? When we were young. What happened to you, Mata? The conversations Russell Subiano had the opportunity to sit down with the directors, Ainsley Gardner and Briar Grace Smith, to talk more about the film. Whenever I watch films from New Zealand about the Maori, I, I see so many similarities between the families and family dynamics on the screen and in my own life. And in this film, I saw some very interesting archetypes 
Makareta is the favorite. Missy is kind of a protector, and Mata is kind of an observer. Are these fairly common to the Maori culture? Well, I think the thing is, is that these experiences are particularly common and then our responses to our various experiences lead us in many different ways. But absolutely, I think there's, there are our aunties who um, are sort of fierce and often in the background and keeping the home fires burning. And there are absolutely women who in our, in our history have, have, decided that the best way to serve their communities is to bridge the the distance between our culture and the colonial culture and that's what Makareta also represents as much as she is someone who's raised to be what we call a puhi, a princess for her tribe, ultimately what she is raised for is to lead in whatever way, whatever way she can and yes there are matters amongst us for sure, I would I would classify myself as a matter. And the, the film was based on a book published in 1992 by Patricia Grace. The script has been in the works for a few years. She's been quoted as saying she believes the right time for the film is now. What do you think she meant by that? The book was from the time it was published. Patricia and Mirata Mita, who is a filmmaker who mentored both Briar and I, tried to get the film made. At the time, the funding structures, the, I guess, the idea of what makes a film and whether anybody is interested in a film about Māori women, those things were problematic at the time. I think when Patricia talks about the time being right, historically, the time is right. There is a groundswell of movement towards other voices, marginalised voices, and certainly in New Zealand, there's a, there's a strength in Māori voices that has accumulated over the past few decades. So, and I think also one of the things that Briar and I realised in the making of the film is that not just culturally, socially and historically is the time right, but we, we were at a place where we were spoilt for choice for actors to play the roles. Briar and I had have a, a long career in the industry. So it was a kind of accumulation of many years of effort to get all of the moving pieces to to be ready as well. There's a mental health component to the film as well. Do you feel like the appropriateness of the timing of the film also coincides with a, a growing importance on addressing mental health? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that, that issue has always been there and it's really obvious in our communities at home and I guess in Hawaii too where you see um, there are many homeless people and the homelessness and, and lack of space has affected, has affected their mental health. I guess at the moment, it seems to me at home to be more prevalent, especially over the last five years than ever. Uh, so it is particularly appropriate too. And also post, well, not post COVID, COVID is, is happening now, but COVID has affected many of us and it's really brought to light the kind of need for community and the need for family in terms of, you know, just human connection. And so uh, there are many reasons I think this film is particularly relevant today. And I think the thing about Mata's mental illness is that we have um, something in our communi communities called Matikiti, seers of spirits, basically. And she's been a Matikiti all of her life. But actually, because she's not raised in the arms of her family on her land, what would otherwise be a gift that would be nurtured and celebrated transforms in her disconnection into what is experienced by outsiders as mental illness. But we always wanted to, for ourselves, know that there was an internal strength about, about Mata and that her mental illness, while per perceived one way externally, actually came from something quite significant and meaningful in our culture. It seems like it could happen with any gift without the proper nurturing and guidance really could end up being misused or affecting people negatively. I thought that was a very interesting aspect to the film. Changing pace a little bit, casting a film that takes place over several decades meant you had to find several actresses to play the three main characters. What was that process like? It was a really big process. As Ainsley mentioned, we, had, we were spoiled for choice. And also, just in terms of the children, 
we did, we cast a big net. And so we did lots of community casting work and went out to communities and auditioned children and schools, et cetera, et cetera. But it became a matter of thinking about in terms of the older characters who we really wanted. So we had the Rachel Houses, the Anna mm. Scottneys, the Tanya Hickeys, and then slowly matching them up with other actors over. So there are three characters per woman, three women. <laughs> So uh, using the ones that we really felt we wanted as a spine for our story and building from there. And then sometimes we would find an actor, but they had a different feel from another actor. And so we would have to, we, we began to learn that the casting, we were casting more on spirit or a feel rather than the way people looked, because you can put a red wig on anyone really. And so when things change, we used to, we, used to, we had to change the whole sort of jigsaw puzzle to make it make it work but eventually we it found its place that's interesting I, I really felt like there was a continuity and spirit of the character even though maybe the physical appearance didn't necessarily match up but I, I really enjoyed being able to watch the characters go through time and really feel like these are the same people as as the time progressed I also read that aunties and uncles and cousins all played a role in the film some as actors others lending a hand to the production. Sounds like it wasn't just about family in front of the camera, but behind it as well. Well, absolutely. For us, that's the meaning of making Māori movies, is making films in community with community and for community, I suppose. So we had some funding from one of my tribal organisations, and one of the criteria was that we had to go there and shoot, which is where we shot all of the all of the rural stuff, it's a lakes area, it's a geothermal area, really beautiful. And the other criteria was, and this is what we would have done anyway, way, but was to do, a, do casting. We used, definitely used real aunties in some of the auntie scenes, a lot of our extras and some of our smaller roles. In fact, the youngest mutter is from that tribal area as well. Uh, and we had internships behind the camera and people working behind the camera. It's a transformational way of making film because it is art imitating life and vice versa. And, you know, the endeavour of making a film becomes just like the endeavour of having a feast or having a tangi or a funeral or, you know, it's everybody working together um, for the shared experience, which is really beautiful. Is there anything else that you want to share about the film with our listeners? Well, I mean, I hope they go and see it. <laughs> I do think, I mean, I do think for your listeners, and this is the, the cool thing we've just opened in Australia as well, the similarities between our cultures yes. um, in Hawaii and New Zealand with Aboriginal culture in Australia. Soon we will be releasing it in other places around the States and Canada and and so to be able to play out the film to Indigenous communities who understand it from their own point of view is really exciting. But we've also found here in New Zealand just a, a massive appreciation for the film um, from non-Indigenous communities. And I think, as Briar says, it just speaks to a real human de desire, particularly at this time, for a connection to, to place and to others. Introduce one of our honor students, Makarita Pairama. He's not scary, just ugly like you. Your place is here on this land, girl. Yeah, you better run, you little baby. Where are you from, dear? I'm from the Mercy Home for Desolate Children. What about your people? They didn't want to keep me. I tried to find you, Mata. We all did. Ainsley Gardner and Briar Grace Smith, directors of Cousins, speaking with our Russell Subiano. The New Zealand movie will make its Hawaii premiere at Consolidated's Ward Theatre on Friday. And in coming days on HBR, we'll have more on this film and indigenous community filmmaking with HBR's Kuvehi Ereishi. Straight and ill go away 
Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, offering virtual classes including art, film, history, and gardening with start dates through mid-July. More by searching Osher Hawaii. You may have seen legendary musicians on stage and on screen, but what do they do between tours? And what's it like to talk with critically acclaimed artists like Peter Frampton, John McLaughlin, or Anna Nancy Wilson of Heart? Find out as we go behind the scenes of HBR's Off the Road series with me, Dave Lawrence, Saturday, July 10th at 10 a.m. It's a virtual event with a Q&A session for you to ask the questions. Sign up now at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Maui Arts and Cultural Center. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pacific American Lumber on Oahu with Neolith Centered Stone, a heat, stain, and scratch-resistant surface for indoor and outdoor countertops, flooring, and walls. P-A-C-A-M-Lumber.com. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now look to the skies in search of a sleek, endemic raptor that symbolizes royalty. In this week's Manu Minute, we learn about Hawaii's only native bird of prey. And thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for bringing us its song. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the eel. Eel or Hawaiian hawk, is the only native hawk found in Hawaii. Fossil evidence shows they once lived on all the main Hawaiian islands, but today are found only on the Big Island, where their population is considered stable, or perhaps even increasing. Because of this, they were removed from the Federal Endangered Species list just last year. Eo come in two colors. Some are mainly dark, while others are mostly cream-colored with brown backs. You can tell adults from juveniles by the color of their sear or a fleshy patch above their bill. Adult EO have yellow-colored sears, while young juvenile birds have greenish-blue ones. Unlike many of their cousins from North America that feed mainly on rodents, EO have evolved more maneuverable wings that allow them to catch forest birds, as there were no mammals in Hawaii until after humans arrived. EO can be found in native and non-native forests all over the Big Island, from sea level up to over 10,000 feet in elevation. They build platform nests out of sticks in the branches of large trees, and once their young fledge from the nest, may still be fed by their parents for up to nine months, a very long parental care period for a hawk. EO have shrill, high-pitched calls that sound a bit like their name. Eo are a symbol of royalty, and Ku, the god of war and prosperity, could appear as an Eo. They're also considered an Almakua, or ancestral guardian spirit. Fortunately, Eo do not appear to be susceptible to mosquito-transmitted avian malaria, like many other Hawaiian birds. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart, UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Forest Bathing Hawaii, offering guided walks to reconnect with the natural world, in person at Lion Arboretum for individuals, private and corporate groups, and virtual walks gifted to frontline workers. ForestBathingHI.com For today's quiz, we dug up a 70s sitcom that doesn't get a lot of buzz. It was filmed on an estate at the foot of Diamond Head. A lot of local keiki got screen time as the story was about a father-daughter pediatrician team who ran a free children's clinic in Kahala. Here's the soundtrack from the opening credits. Aloha, doctor. Hi, Dad. Little bones and little hearts can sometimes end up broken. Medicine works twice as well when understanding words are spoken. How the kids 
is that ring a bell? It was created by Gary Marshall, debuted in 1972, and was called The Little People. A year later, it was renamed The Brian Keith Show. Some episodes were written by Marshall around the same time he was launching ABC's Happy Days. This morning, we asked you, who was the actress who played the sidekick character who kept the chaotic office running smoothly? Nurse Pony. She was played by local talent Victoria Young. No winners for today's quiz, but if you have one, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. They've got a little bit of magic working all the while. Just give them love, a little love. Because tomorrow depends on little people. You know, tomorrow depends on little people. That is the program for today. Up tomorrow, we share a Hanaho rebroadcast about Hawaii's TV and film industry. But before we go, we take a listen to Ka'ili Chun, who called our talkback line to answer our question of the month. Aloha, my name is Ka'ili Chun, and I just wanted to comment on the fruit of the summer. I think the fruit of the summer is ulu. It's so delicious. Pop it in the oven at 450, cook it for 45 minutes, let it set for an hour, and it's good to go. So sweet and so delicious. It's almost like butter. Uh, that's my comment. Aloha. And mahalo. What do you think is the fruit that best captures summer in Hawaii? Call our talkback line and leave us your comments. 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Bill Dorman. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Aloha.